0: Actions, Responses to Trafficking, the podcast that shines a spotlight on new and established trafficking responses in the UK and beyond. Hello and welcome back to Actions, the Responses to Trafficking podcast. I'm Catherine Baldacchino and this is a podcast where I speak to people who are working in different ways to respond to trafficking in order to help share their work with other people working in the field. Today, I've spoken to Dr. Hannah Tinyane, who is the Principal Research Fellow at United Nations University Institute in Macau, where she leads the Migrant Tech Research Project. We talk about some of her work to utilize information and communication technology to better protect and screen groups at risk of being trafficked. And specifically, we discuss the APPRISE tool for screening vulnerable populations. We spoke in March 2021. Thanks for downloading this episode. Please get in touch with any feedback or further questions via at Actions podcast on Twitter. Welcome back to Actions. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Hannah Tinyane, who is the Principal Research Fellow at United Nations University Institute in Macau, where she leads the Migrant Tech Research Project. Welcome, Hannah. It's great to be speaking to you today. Yeah, thanks, Catherine. It's great to talk to you. Great to have you. And thank you for accommodating the time difference as well. I know it's a little bit later there today.
1: No worries. It's 5pm, so it's all okay.
0: Okay, great. (laughs) Let's start with some information about yourself for those who haven't met you before. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background?
1: Yeah, um, so my name is Hannah Tignani. I'm originally from Australia, um, but I've been working for Um, So 16 years altogether in ICT for development. Um, I did my PhD in Australia um, at the University of South Australia in computer science, and then I spent 10 and a bit years in South Africa looking at ICT for development, and then I came and started this job almost five years ago now um, where I lead a research project looking at the use of ICTs for sustainable development, specifically looking at Target 8.7.
0: as you guys know, what it
1: prints 8.7 already is.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. That's so interesting. And I really honestly found preparing for this discussion super interesting. Um, I almost lost myself in a rabbit warren of your reports <laughs> and research into the use of technology to better protect and screen vulnerable migrants, specifically labor migrants in hard to access sectors like domestic work. Can you tell us more about the Migrant Tech Project and your work, the work that you do through this?
1: Cool. So the Migrant Tech Research Project focuses on the use of ICTs to empower migrant workers. Our research focuses on key points in the migrant workers journey, including recruitment, work and reintegration. But our biggest part, our biggest project is in work. If I just very briefly mentioning other parts, within the recruitment part, we have a specific focus on the use of ICT to overcome information asymmetries, um, providing migrant workers with access to accurate information about potential job att- opportunities or recruitment agencies. We know that one of the key patterns of exploitation is about debt bondage where um, workers mm. have to take these exorbitant loans to be able to get to work. So if we can have a focus on recruitment as well, then that should have an impact when we get to the exploitation at work um, later on. Also have a focus on work, the price project, which I guess we'll spend most of our time working um, yeah. looking at. Um, But so we started that project when I looked at the most conservative estimates, I'm talking about 24.9 million people in situations of forced labour and human trafficking around the world. And like, say any year, really, you say less than 100,000 people are identified and subsequently helped, which tells me that current methods of identifying victims are flawed because we're missing so many people. Mm. And it also tells me that what we know about these cases and the information comes from a very small proportion of the cases that exist. Yeah. So in the APPRISE project, we focus on innovating and inventing digital technology to support frontline workers to assess working conditions and for workers to seek help to change their circumstances if they wish. So then the third project is looking at reintegration. And we see that without adequate opportunities and job skills, survivors of exploitation and abuse are vulnerable to re-trafficking. So, to address this, many service providers offer vocational training in, um, in low skill kind of um, uh, opportunities, like making soap or baking or um, decorating things with shells. And um, that's the, the people who we talked to in Philippines. They were the kinds of skill training that they offered. Um, But our research works with a group in Cebu in Philippines, which investigate the impact of digital skills training. Um, We did a study with them looking at participatory video approaches, um, looking at the well-being of survivors, as well as how training programs offered by um, that group and the security of high skilled employment affect recovery and reintegration of survivors of exploitation.
0: So there are three main topics. Yeah, and so interesting. And once, I guess, you begin to scratch the surface, there's so much potential for ICT in in all of these areas. Definitely. Um, How do you deal with digital accessibility or potential digital poverty when it comes to people that might not be able to access the necessary technology? Or, Or do you find that that's not a problem?
1: No, definitely is a problem. And it shapes the kind of interventions that we undertake. So, in my background is in human-computer interaction. So, we study the way humans interact with computers, and we innovate different ways of supporting them. Um, and so, we take a broad perspective of what technology is. So, maybe mm. technology means a mobile app if people have it, a mobile phone and, yeah. and access to the internet. And maybe it means a radio show. And maybe it means a I don't know, a poster on a wall. So we we tailor the types of interventions we do based on the skills of um, the target audience. So obviously, if you have a poster on a wall, you better make sure people can um, understand and read the language that you're writing in. So there are all of these factors that come into play um, in ICT for development intervention.
0: Okay, so it's not just about access to devices or technology, yeah. actually. It, it's it's a really holistic look at how people get information and how people access information.
1: Absolutely. So the work I did in my previous um, job at Rhodes University in South Africa, we looked at increasing citizen participation in local government. And we actually found that the best way to get um, families to report service delivery outages was to do um, some different kinds of radio shows in different languages on different channels um, and then do dramas at schools and in festivals. Um, and that was our way of, of providing education about a mobile app. So there are lots of different ways that we can look
0: at. So Interesting um and you also mentioned the sort of recruitment phase of of your work the one of the pillars um can you talk more about the use then of ICT in pre and post screening for foreign domestic workers because again that's something I read on on one of the sites that I just found really really interesting before people then departed and traveled
1: yes so what we see is that um quite a lot of recruitment agencies will post information. The big question is, is the information accurate? Um, Mm. And do people know what they're getting into? Um, You see quite a lot of of problems, um, say on Facebook groups where people um, send information about different job opportunities, but again, is the information accurate? And how can people check the accuracy of these things? So we've just completed, um, I think, yesterday or the day before, I can't remember which that was, but in the last <laughs> few days, we submitted our final um, report to ILO and the uh, Labour Organisation and the International Trade Union Confederation looking at the use of digital technology in the recruitment phase um, for, for migrant workers and specific recruitment corridors, say so from the Philippines, Sri Lanka and um, Nepal, going to Hong Kong and Malaysia. So we are looking at the use of digital technology um, to inform the migration journey and specifically choosing recruitment agencies as well as um, problems that people face. So, while I can't necessarily talk about the, res- the results of the study, as I, I need to leave it for them to do first, um, it's, it was a, a really interesting look at the effect of culture and how that impacts what kind of exploitation people are actually used to and expect. Um, in some cases where people would um, just assume that people are going to rip them up. So if that happens within your own family, why wouldn't it happen with a recruitment agency as
0: well? That's interesting. And I guess that's something that's been a little bit under-researched about people's thresholds for accept- acceptability and what they expect to happen to them in these situations.
1: Yeah. And not saying that it should happen at all, but no. It's always that, you know, the control lens that I would never accept this kind of behaviour so nobody else should. And um, what does that look like if you don't have other job opportunities to choose from?
0: And that will impact people's um, access to support or willingness to access support or to leave the situations of exploitation uh, as well. So it all sort of rolls into each other. Yeah, definitely. So let's move specifically to talk to about the Apprise apps that you've developed. Can You mm-hmm. you started already to explain some of the problems that you were seeking to address. Can you elaborate more on on what, what the problems were and which led to the development?
1: Cool. So as I mentioned earlier, um, when you look at number of victims that are identified each year, it's really evident that there's a problem with victim identification. Yeah. So um, I'm... My expertise is in um, ICT for development and mobile applications, mobile human computer, architecture. definitely not in victim identification. <laughs> so I began this field research component um, in April 2017, where I organized interviews with 30 different stakeholders, including um, Department of Special Investigations, which is kind of like the FBI in Thailand, um, the IOM, uh, NGOs, as well as shelters, um, who provide support for exploited workers to understand the problems they face with victim identification. Um, and definitely trying to emphasise from the workers' perspective, what problems did they um, face in the victim identification process. Mm. So across each of the different interviews, people spoke of issues um, specifically in the initial screening phase so they talk about three phases of victim identification so initial screening in the field and um, where we're, everybody's trying to assess basically what's going on and is there a case then you have the case management kind of part where a case is opened and it's about collecting more evidence and um, that can be then taken to trial and then we go to government assistance and frameworks and things like that so mm. kind of step two and three really were outside of the scope of what I was looking for. So I chose to focus on the initial screening phase. Um, And in this, the different groups that I talked to all talked about um, problems with communication, training, trust, and privacy. So with communication, everyone speaks different (laughs) languages. That one's the easy one to understand. Mm. Um, And sometimes people have... um, a translator with them, but often it might be in a a language that the the worker doesn't speak fluently. Um, A lack of training in the field to understand what the current practices of exploitation are because we know these things change. Um, And it takes a lot of of care to make sure that everybody is now trained with the current practices. We also know these things are sector-specific. Like I exploit someone differently on a boat than I would in a factory because it's a different environment Mm. and people talked about a lack of trust in the intentions of everyone else specifically the explosive workers they said they don't know who to trust and so that was a big thing and then a lack of privacy and initial screening because it often happens in the field and in front of your of their employer and with privacy people also said well what often happens is we will then maybe get um A translator to come along and maybe if there's no translator they might ask the boss to come along and translate and then there's no privacy (laughs) left in any kind of screening Mm. so from that the idea was that if we could find ways to help people overcome these problems um, and give workers a better chance to ask for help maybe we could see more cases being identified and then more people being helped So after all these issues, we had a brainstorming session where we talked with different stakeholders about who had access to technology and what did they have access to, as well as how they thought that they could use tech to improve screening. So the outcome of that was the mobile app that I developed to price. Um, yeah. Which is a mobile app for a frontline responder's phone, um, not for a, a worker's phone, because in our interviews we found out that workers don't have phones necessarily, right. um, and they don't have the, uh, they don't often install an app in case they might be exploited later on. So there's that problem of having to have an app on your phone to in case later I might need to ask for help. So by targeting a frontline responder, we really overcome that issue. Um, And then the frontline responder also is the person who has the ability to um, help the person exit the work situation or seek changes in the work situation. Um, So it was really important for us to kind of build the capacity of these people who are already there, already inspecting
0: working conditions, just to do the job a little bit easier. That's really fascinating. And how, so, how does it work in practice then? So, so would it generally be auditors and, and people visiting workplaces to inspect, or would it be other organizations as well? And, and how would they use the phone or the app in practice?
1: Yeah, okay. So, we work with a number of different groups. So, in last year, we just finished off a study with the Port In, Port Out inspection centers, which are government inspection centers and in fishing with the Ministry of Labour and Royal Thai Navy in Thailand. Um, and so they were using a prize for like four months um, in their own inspections of, of fishing vessels. So I'm not sure how familiar you are with um, Thai fishing industry, but right now they have a system where they have to inspect boats before they're allowed to go out to catch fish right. and before they're allowed to offload their catch. Um, there's some kind of a matrix that does a risk assessment, basically, to say which boats should be inspected. Um, Otherwise, your labour inspectors would be busy all day long. Um, But um, the system was being used by them to help with the worker feedback. Um, We also have had, um, or we currently have um, the auditors in multinational corporations who are using a price in their own inspections of supply chains. Um, and then we have NGOs who are using it in their outreach activities. We're just about to start um, working in Hong Kong um, with NGOs as well, helping them in their outreach. And um, that's where the domestic workers come in. Excellent.
0: And so if I've understood correctly, the, the, the scope for the app is quite broad. So it can be used to collect data, to inform prevention policy. It can be used to to audit supply chains, but it can also be used, as you're saying, for NGOs to help recover people potentially from situations of exploitation. Yeah. Um, Do you find that it depends on the cooperation of employers or business owners, them being willing to have the app applied in their workplace? So I guess by default, does it mean that it's generally going to be employers with already good practice who are permitting the use in their premises?
1: Well, say... That's one of the questions I always ask, are we only going to find the people doing the right thing in the first (laughs) place? If you think of private auditors, say um, a multinational corporation might have multiple brands and then each brand has multiple factories within their supply chains and they have somebody who assesses the working conditions in their supply chains. Now, there is an agreement as part of um, the agreement to buy products from a factory. There is an agreement that their workplace will be inspected. So that's why we go with um, multinational corporations, because they already have somebody who walks in and does those those inspections for us. Um, It's not our product, it's their product necessarily. It's like we're giving them a tool to do their job. Right. Um, so we see that it is being used in a large variety of different um, factories and like um, for the different verticals within the multinational corporations. Mm. Um, I would guess that if they are, we are being approached by corporations to use the tool. so I would guess that maybe if they are approaching us, maybe they think they're doing a, a good job. Um, but also any... It would be hard for a multinational corporation to know every single factory in their supply chain, mm. so they might think they're doing a good job, but then realize that there are some weaknesses um, in their supply chain, and this would help them to identify them um, and address them.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And have you seen any negative impacts on employees who answer the questions honestly? Um, if there's then any negative impact on the employers?
1: So I haven't necessarily seen any myself. Um, again, so I don't go off oh, COVID-19, can't go anywhere. Um, but <laughs> I don't get out <laughs> into the fields and go to the factories myself. People tell us what they want to share. There's always that part to the whole story that uh, I guess companies would paint themselves in the best picture possible. Um We always hear the good stories. I'm not saying that there are only good stories, but it's one of those things I'm always aware of. Um, Yeah, we're asking them for feedback Um, on what way. Yeah,
0: yeah, but it is. I mean, it's such a powerful opportunity because you're right. When audits do occur, there's always the risk of being overheard or or people being, Mm -hmm. you know, people being quite scared to share the true information about what's happening. But this guarantees a level of anonymity and the ability to be more candid yeah. and express the real situation that people are in
1: yeah and that's actually what we heard from within the um, auditors with the auditors that we work with they talked about getting feedback to questions that no one would ever respond to say so mm. things about physical or sexual violence forced pregnancy tests things like that they said never will anyone disclose that but with um, a prize audit, they're actually getting responses to these questions. And in some cases, the responses say, yes, I'm being t- um, forced to have pregnancy tests, which they then use to um, inform their on-site investigations and and follow up and make even, even if it's just minor, but um, small policy changes within the different
0: factories. So, yeah, again, evidence of just how powerful it can be. Um <laughs> I'm really interested in, in what you mentioned about NGOs using it to also help identify survivors and potentially um, create yeah. an opportunity for that person to be removed from that situation. Um, can you elaborate more on, on the functions and, and how it's used in that particular setting?
1: Yes, yeah, so the NGOs we work with have been using it in their outreach activities. So a number of them talk about having really big volunteer bases and on, Hmm. say, a weekend, all these volunteers will come, they're all excited, they want to help, but they don't know anything about labour law Um, and they don't know how to assess working conditions. Um, But what they do is they ask each of their volunteers to um, install the app on their phone. And they use it really as a triage tool. So um, each of their volunteers will go out with a set of headphones. Each of them will go and, you know, they have barbecues. They go to the noodle shop. They do all this kind of stuff. Wherever the workers hang out, that's where they go anyway. But this allows them to, again, um, let the worker tell them about the exploitation they face privately. And then um, I have this vulnerability calculation that we have based on the responses of the um, worker. It um, aligns each question with the ILO indicators of forced labor. And then it looks um, for vul- uh, indications of vulnerability. And so if it says there are high indications of vulnerability based on the responses, um, then the volunteer base know to refer the case to the case management team. And then they're able to, again, reach more people Um, uh, in a short amount of time. Another interesting one, I always find it interesting, is um, we have some NGOs who um, support sex workers in Thailand. Um, And so they were saying that they use the tool as like an undercover way of talking to um, the workers in, in the brothels and the massage parlors and the bars and all that stuff so it looks like they're just having a conversation or playing on a phone taking photos all this stuff but really the um the sex worker has headphones in and they're asking questions in her own language and she's able to um indicate if she wants help um, and there's also ways of asking if people want you to follow up later and things like that
0: yeah excellent because that's actually what I was going to ask so it's not only about screening that they're hitting certain indicators but actually it asks them questions of do they want actually help do they want support to be sort of removed from that situation
1: yeah so all along our big thing is we want to support workers to ask for help if they want it it can't be that I decide I wouldn't want to work on a smelly boat therefore nobody should be able to work on a smelly boat yeah it has to be are they happy with the situation they're in maybe actually there are no signs of it, um, exploitation but they want to leave and they they for some reason believe they need help to do this. Well, then they can indicate as well um, using the app. But maybe they are facing serious exploitation and they want to stay. They don't want help to leave. And as long as the person's not a minor, well, then they can stay, you know, otherwise child labor.
0: <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Definitely. Because I guess I can see your point I think you mentioned earlier about the need to complement the app with also proper training for the people yeah. using the app, because I guess if somebody has asked to be removed from that situation or asked for help, um, or there's you know, certain indicators that are quite alarming, I guess there is a real risk of doing harm in that moment if it's not yeah. handled properly and sensitively by the person responding.
1: Yeah. Um so yeah, different frontline responders will have their own mandates. So an NGO can do certain things and a police officer could do other things. Um a police officer can remove a person from a situation. Um, that was one of my big fears if I'm honest when we started that what if a worker says they want to stay and you decide they have to leave? And um the police officers we talked to were like, as long as they're not children. Um they have the right to choose some things. If they're breaking the law, um well then we we may do other things. And now that yeah. also may bring up questions about the different sectors of work that we work with and the different frontline responders that we support. So in some cases where work may be um criminalized but the work is a, a blind eye is turned to it, we don't mm. necessarily work with um
0: police officers.
1: Uh, we may support the community to monitor its own um, participants
0: instead. Yeah, that's really refreshing to hear because I guess, yeah, that is always a concern that sort of rings true is, is yeah, what if people are then removed from situations they really didn't want to be removed from or if they actually... Um, and especially when there's no support structures then set up for after they've left exploitation. Um, yeah. 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 One of the things I read connected to this in one of your reports was that there's flawed logic in expecting workers to use technology to report on exploitation without providing necessary scaffolding or support structures. Does this connect to what we've just said or or does that mean something else?
1: It kind of connects to it. Um, It also, I think I was trying to indirectly say that if I keep on reporting exploitation and then you don't do anything about it, well, I'm not yeah. going to trust that, you know, <laughs> like why would I can keep um, reporting on exploitation? You know, I'll I'll realise my voice is being heard but ignored and you don't really care. Um, But then also if I'm removed from a situation yet still have these massive debts, how is it in my best interest to not be working any longer? And that may mm. even force me to take even more precarious work because now I can't work in, in my preferred workplace and I have to now find find a different way of,
0: of paying back the loan. Yeah, that does make so much sense. Um, are you seeing a change in behaviours or prevalence through the use of this technology?
1: Mm, so that's a very complicated question. I can As imagine, yeah. At long-term in- impact. And I would love to say <laughs> that we have seen changes. But we haven't had the time to um, see changes in prevalence. Um, That's a long-term thing. It's also very complicated because there are so many factors that come into play. If you think of even just COVID-19, what impact has that on the patterns that had been established over, say, a year or so? Hmm. What we have noticed is um, how patterns of exploitation change over time, say, um, in response to loopholes that people discover or maybe changing inspection practices. We noticed this in like 2018, I think, um, when um, I was doing field research trips every month or two months. And we, we noticed that a pattern of exploitation that started in one place, we saw it again um, in the next spot a little bit later. And then now everybody's doing the same thing. And so based on this like underground finding, um, I started a, a more academic study looking at using epidemiological approaches to understand human trafficking. So the general idea is that if we consider human trafficking as a public health concern, um, something that people like Kathy Zimmerman have been talking about for a long time, it makes sense to investigate um, human trafficking um, using public health approaches. So in particular, I talk about a sentinel surveillance approach, and this is something that's normally used for study of infectious diseases, but it's also been adapted to um, report non-communicable health problems, such as child maltreatment and domestic violence. So using sentinel surveillance, you have sentinel sites where there's a greater than average likelihood of coming across a worker in an exploitative situation. This could be like a port, could be the local noodle shop where all of the Burmese workers um, go after work, could be any of these kind of sites. If you equip them with screening tools, maybe like a prize, and help them with proactive and consistent and anonymous data collection, you can use this information um, to identify trends and monitor for labour exploitation within these trafficking hotspots. So my big grand scheme idea is that you can identify patterns And these patterns could um, show changes in practices of exploitation. And the number one goal would be prevention. (laughs) Um, Mm. But but also we could use that same data to enhance um, protection. So maybe with better screening, it could kind of be this loop where we realise there are new practices. So we change the screening practices as well to get more information about the current practice of exploitation. And way later down, um, the track could really support prosecution as well, because we now have a better understanding of the exploitative practices.
0: Yeah, I can see how it's all connected and all all benefits sort of in that loop. Um, and I really like how this addresses that constant data question because I think everybody's always concerned about the collection of data and the methods used and, you know, whether people are consenting to the information that they're giving yeah. if you only rely on data of people who are identified and then entering support structures. Um, and this kind of bypasses that and provides a really strong evidence base. Um,
1: yeah, and it's the small patterns of exploitation. So when a worker uses a prize, it begins with an introduction says who this person is who's given you the phone what the purpose is that we're getting the information their responses to these yes or no worded questions but it's all anonymous and we don't collect we don't even ask them anything that can identify them um and so these yes or no worded questions um we get the responses and we capture them and we know what sector of work they're in because they chose a question list, you know, so mm. one question list is for fishing and one is for a, a factory and one is for sex work and things like that. So we can get that kind of broader information and we know what time and, um, and date the um, interview happened and that's the information where we can say what common practices are there across the different sectors of work and what's different and is it different when people say that they want to undertake the interview in um, Mon or Shan compared to Lao or Khmer. What, mm. So it's this
0: kind of fine-grained um, evaluation that we want to do. And the app itself is is quite user-friendly. I've, I've seen images of yeah. it, so it, it's sort of got like a really nice green tick and an X, and, and I guess the, the yeah. questions are heard via the headphones, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. how long so- does it take to complete a survey?
1: Well, that depends on the survey because some of them have many more questions than others and the language because some languages like Burmese are really verbose (laughs) compared to, say, English. So it's anywhere between five and 15 minutes. Um, Some of our surveys have, like, 40 questions. Um, They're all branched. So, like, if you say, I didn't receive a contract, well, then I'll skip all these questions about was it in your language, did you get to keep a copy of it and all these. Mm. So, yeah, that's why I can kind of give you a range in time, but not necessarily a, um, an average time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And what were some of the design considerations that went into the sort of the interface and the way that it's structured?
1: Um, so as a, um, someone in human computer interaction, my study is in design of interfaces. And so that was a big thing for me. Um, over a period of about a year, we focused on different features, which we tweaked and went back to verify. Um, so I use a, a, a technique called rapid prototyping, where you make a low fidelity um, prototype, which means really to start with, I had like a, um, a PowerPoint presentation, which I put on a phone, and that kind of demonstrated the basic idea, and then we could really easily change bits of it without it being like changing a big code base. Mm. Um, so over a period of year, I went from a low fidelity to a high fidelity prototype, which means I like, actually developed the app based on the feedback after each month cycle. Um, and we looked at things like how learnable is the interface. Um, we um, went to different NGOs and some NGOs who serve um, boys in sex work um, who come from, say, the northern areas of Thailand where they are not literate in any language, and um, could they use the interface and figure out how what they should do if they're just presented with a phone and a set of headphones? Mm. Um, we wanted to understand, do workers understand how to select a language? Um, we have a screen with all these flags, and do they understand that they have to like, just click on one and see what happens? Um, These were some of the uh, other little things we did. We wanted to look at translations because obviously that's really important. Like, is it in the right colloquial language? And each sector has its own kind of sub-language, the way they talk Mm. about things, common concepts within their community. Um, So that's been something that we consistently go back and look at the translations. Um, With the vulnerability calculation, is it accurate? We had um, human rights lawyers from uh, Thailand assessing the accuracy of our vulnerability calculation. Um, How can we present the findings in a summarised way that provides enough detail to a frontline responder but not too much um, detail so that anyone overlooking can understand what's going on? Um, Yeah, I think that's all of the (laughs) the
0: main different um, evaluations that we did. They're quite comprehensive and quite a holistic view at all the different aspects and the safety concerns, as you've mentioned, about somebody yeah. looking over someone's shoulder. Yeah. Um, also, I was really curious about the way you developed the indicators that you're checking against because, again, they need to be so specific to industry and to country or location within the country. Um, and you went through a quite rigorous process to do that. Can you share more about that?
1: Yeah, so the indicators of, of, um check terminology here. The indicators are the ILOs for Slater, but indicators. Um, and they are a set of either 11 or 12. I can't remember exactly. Um, and we use them to categorize each question. So the questions are the ones that we went um, back and forward with a lot of right. different consultations. Um so we started off just saying like, well, I kind of have a vague idea of what exploitation could look like in this sector, but I again understand I'm no expert. So we formed these different working groups. Um uh, in the very beginning with um the Department of Special Investigations, they gave us like basically a start of what they thought exploitation looked like in the different sectors we were working um in. And then we took them First of all, to NGOs, to get their feedback, to really understand what are the current practices because we know that, well, aligning to law and things like that are great because it's comprehensive, but the law mm. is very slow-moving. And we might want to look at something about withholding wages, but there's a current practice that the NGO and um, like outreach officers will be very familiar with. So we've got their information and their buy-in um, to inform the question lists, which we then went back and forward between um, different stakeholders. And then in the end, we had um, a big consultation with NGOs, um, international gov- international organizations, as well as government organizations, um, to look at like an overall understanding of what's going on. Yeah, but it took a long time. <laughs>
0: yeah but it sounds like it was well worth it and yeah thanks also for clarifying that it's the questions that were consulted and the indicators still apply universally yeah um what key considerations or learning would you share with other people who are potentially considering doing this kind of thing or, or providing information in this way or developing tools like this
1: i think first of all
0: um recognizing the
1: expertise of people in the field, especially workers who are faced by this exploitation, they have an understanding that no one else will be able to ever match. Um, and so giving them a voice and emphasizing their voice and making sure they're included in ways that, um, that they feel comfortable with. I mentioned all these consultations and things. We didn't actually involve them in many of them. We had specific events specifically from, for them because they said, I wouldn't want to i wouldn't feel comfortable to share and actually the ngos as well so they wouldn't they wouldn't go to these big events with the oh. government but that's not their thing Um. so making space for them to feel comfortable and provide input and valuing their input at the same time maybe there's always such optimism about the impact of technology um, to to solve or support and um, people to solve different um, like wicked problems we call them Um, and there is definitely a role for digital technology but it's definitely not the solution to victim identification because people will use an abuse technology to achieve their aims so in the same way as um an employer might lie or a worker might lie and or a frontline responder might select a biased sample of workers or maybe share the results of a series of interviews with with the employer. And the intent, if they're intending to exploit workers, they're going to use any technology to do the same thing. So we can't expect a computer to change people's underlying motivations. We need to have some kind of checks and balances where we say where we follow up and, mm. and look at transparency and look at accountability for. In, in victim identification look for accountability in um how cases are followed up yeah I think that's my my pearls of wisdom
0: <laughs> absolutely and really insightful and yeah I can totally see the point and how that loops back to sort of having proper standards um standard operating procedures and training yeah. and, and you know and not looking at technology necessarily as the silver bullet but actually it needs to be complemented by a range of other things that um that needs to be in place as well yeah yeah excellent thank you um hannah i think that's all we have time for today although i could continue asking you loads more (laughs) questions about this because there's so much more um, that i'd love to know thank you so much for coming on this podcast and sharing your work with me no worries thanks for the opportunity (laughs) no not a problem how can people get in touch if they'd like to find out more or explore potentially using a prize
1: um, well, um, they can contact me. Maybe the easiest is on the apprize, um email address, so apprize at unu.edu. We um, can find us on Twitter. Um, my name's Hannah Timiani, so um, my handle's Hannah Timiani. <laughs> That's very interesting. Um, or Apprize Solutions as another Twitter. And we can give you the details. You can put it in the notes.
0: Absolutely. I'll include everything in the show notes. Excellent. Thank you so much again, Hannah. Really appreciate your time. No worries. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you also to the listeners or the viewers. Until the next time, goodbye. Thanks again, Hannah. Thanks also to you for listening. All of the links to information about the work featured in this episode are in the show notes. Find us on Twitter at Actions Podcast. You can watch the video recording of this discussion on our YouTube channel. The link is in the show notes. To get in touch or to suggest a topic to be featured in an episode, either direct message us on Twitter or alternatively email actionspodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe wherever you download your podcasts and feel free to leave a review. You've been listening to Actions, Responses to Trafficking podcast. Music used in this episode is Inspiration, written by Raphael Crux and sourced from freepd.com. Actions is produced and presented by Catherine Baldachina.